Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host Navem and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. Today's episode is part two of an in-depth analysis focusing on the covert element of American foreign policy where the United States has played an active role in destabilizing foreign governments, deposing foreign leaders and launching military regime change. In today's dual episode, I will focus on two unique cases of covert action, that of Iran 1953 and Chile 1973, which explore in greater detail the actual use of covert action as a U.S. foreign policy instrument. In terms of noteworthy and influential cases of U.S. covert action, in the developing world, Iran and Chile offer two of the most striking and practical examples. Iran in the early 1950s was considered the first major successful operation of its kind, while Chile throughout the 1960s and early 1970s was considered a one-of-a-kind event. U.S. covert operations continued for many years later, but under different circumstances and utilizing different methods. In both Iran and Chile, there was not a great deal of U.S. military involvement. However, one can witness the commencement of U.S. covert activity at a small scale using propaganda and political operations and then review their impact as covert action escalated into larger-scale operations employing economic or military options, ultimately ending in violent coup d'etat. So let's begin by examining the background to Iran. The outcome of U.S. covert action in Iran created ripple effects that went far beyond its immediate use as a policy tool, creating unforeseen problems on a larger scale for future U.S. administrations. Operation IAX was the code name for the CIA-organized military coup launched against the democratically elected government of Iran, led by Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh. The covert operation was considered a success at the time by foreign policy experts in Washington and later served as a blueprint and guide for future covert intervention. The original stimulus for covert action against Iran was a threat to British interests rather than U.S. interests because the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, or AIOC, which was a British-Iranian joint venture, was in danger of being nationalized in 1951 as part of the reforms to impose greater sovereignty over Iranian resources by newly elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Of all the overseas possessions the British owned at the start of the 1950s, the AIOC was the most valuable because the revenue earned from this company was a vital economic lifeline in the aftermath of the Second World War. And thanks to a deal concluded decades earlier, the bulk of Iran's oil revenue was flowing into Britain's state coffers while minimum royalties were being paid to Iran. And despite British protests, the AIOC, once nationalized, became the NIOC, or National Iranian Oil Company, a move supported by 95% of Iran's population at the time. Great Britain's Prime Minister during this period, Winston Churchill, who was a staunch advocate of the colonial system and therefore historically opposed to third world nationalism, labeled Mossadegh, quote, 
an elderly lunatic bent on wrecking his country and handing it over to the communists. Following advice received from MI6, the British intelligence service, the UK government turned to the United States for assistance, but were greeted with scepticism by the administration of President Harry Truman, which was wary of any form of covert operations to oust Mossadegh and his government. Despite British concerns, Mossadegh's relationship with the United States was cordial because Washington saw in the new Iranian prime minister a reliable future ally. And that's because under Truman, the United States pursued two objectives. Firstly, Iran had to be kept in the Western camp at all costs due to its strategic location between the Soviet Union and the Persian Gulf oil fields, thereby preventing it from falling under communist influence, but also to avoid Iran from adopting a neutralist position. Secondly, stability had to be maintained in the global oil market because a protracted oil crisis would damage the US economy and therefore its vital security interests. Overall, neither objective warranted destabilizing the Mossadegh government at that particular time. And seeking to starve the Iranian government of funds until it backed down, the British government announced a new round of retaliatory measures. Iran would be blockaded, its oil shipments seized, and the Anglo-Iranian currency convertibility agreement, which changed sterling into dollars, came to an end. In addition, exports to Iran of sugar, iron, steel, and manufactured goods, such as railway equipment, also ceased. The Truman administration preferred a peaceful solution to the Iranian problem, but when Dwight D. Eisenhower entered the White House in 1953, the British finally received the assistance they sought. On February 3, 1953, American and British officials met to discuss the Iranian problem and the idea of a military overthrow became official policy. Eisenhower formally approved US involvement in Iran's regime change, dubbed Operation Ayax, at a cabinet meeting in June 1953. Kermit Roosevelt, the CIA field agent largely responsible for the coordination and execution of the coup, was tasked with Mossadegh's overthrow. Even prior to receiving official approval, the CIA had prepared for a potential coup by establishing espionage networks throughout Iran. As early as 1948, it conducted Operation Bedam, a propaganda campaign to counter Soviet influence in Iran through newspaper articles and cartoons. And the major issue in Iran had become the perceived threat of a communist takeover, either by the Tudeh, the Iranian Communist Party, or via the Soviet Union. However, without solid evidence to support this assumption, the White House, through the CIA and MI6, continued covert planning to overthrow Mossadegh's government. Initially, a wide variety of methods were used by the United States, including a joint Anglo-US boycott of Iranian oil, cutting off US financial aid to Iran, the freezing of Iranian bank assets in both London and Washington. The CIA's covert activity against Mossadegh's government also included minor initiatives, beginning with political and propaganda operations. The CIA also convinced Shah Mohammad Reza, Iran's monarch at the time, that Mossadegh was a threat and should therefore be removed from office. However, these efforts did not yield the desired effect which prompted the CIA to reinforce its efforts by ratcheting up its ongoing program of Bedam. And as a result of expanding Operation Bedam, Iran now felt the influence of CIA-sponsored propaganda during the spring and summer of 1953. Essentially, it became an all-out effort to undermine Mossadegh's support base through the funding of local media elements, in addition to a wide-scale program to 
destabilize his government. CIA Bureau Chief Kermit Roosevelt began sponsoring key elements of the Iranian media to denounce the Prime Minister and supplied American-written anti-Mossadegh articles and defamatory cartoons in the Tehran press. These articles were designed to portray Mossadegh as a communist collaborator and political fanatic. And in the months preceding the coup, an estimated 80% of Tehran's newspapers were under CIA influence. The CIA also profited from British MI6 agents who had already established numerous contacts in Iran throughout the years. These agents had identified the strongest person to replace Mossadegh as prime minister, a retired army general named Fazlola Zahidi. Roosevelt understood that the coup had to appear quasi-legal, so the plan called for Shah Mohammad Reza to issue a firman or royal decree, which formally dismissed Mossadegh as prime minister and labeled Zahidi as his successor. By August 1953, Roosevelt felt that the country was ready for a change in government and received the green light from his superiors. The original date for the coup was August 16, 1953, but the first attempt failed when elements of the Iranian army leaked information to Mossadegh, who began arresting those suspected of involvement, while the Shah subsequently fled the country. And in the days following the failure of the first coup attempt, CIA agents began publicly distributing large quantities of the Faman, or royal decree, to dismiss Mossadegh. This had a tremendous impact on the people of Tehran, who were shocked and angered to learn of the Shah's departure from Iran. The CIA-sponsored newspapers ran fabricated interviews with Zahidi, who stressed that only his government was legal. Radio Tehran also aired statements by Mossadegh which suggested that he was intending to eliminate monarchy and assume an outright dictatorship. The CIA also paid local people to protest against Mossadegh's government in the streets of Tehran, but these demonstrations soon turned into ugly riots when as many as 6,000 armed demonstrators funded by the CIA encountered both two-day and pro-Mossadegh supporters. The anti-Mossadegh mobs ran through the streets claiming support for the Shah in order to portray Mossadegh as a weak leader. The CIA also employed local thugs to masquerade as two-day operatives, attacking articles of religious value. In addition, CIA agents passed out money to bystanders to entice them to join the anti-government movement. And according to members of the Operation IAC staff, the burgeoning mobs followed no ideology, but were simply paid with American dollars. The ensuing mass chaos forced Mossadegh to call for police backup and military intervention in order to curtail the violence. However, the army's support for Mossadegh eventually waned, and in the midst of the chaos, many of the officer corps chose to support the Shah, leaving Mossadegh with no organized defense against Zahidi's forces. And after a lengthy nine-hour gun battle at his home, which killed 300 and injured several hundred more. Mossadegh then fled Tehran. Subsequently, the Shah returned triumphantly in his own airplane, thus restoring the ancient tradition of Iranian monarchy, which from an American perspective helped distract from the appearance of a military takeover. Mossadegh was eventually caught, brought back before a military tribunal and sentenced to three years in prison, followed by a lifetime of house arrest. A roundup and mass arrest of government officials also occurred, with Prime Minister Zahidi in charge. 
The Shah subsequently assumed dictatorial powers and banned both the Communist Party and the National Front. The significance of the Mossadegh coup is hard to overestimate because it permanently changed the future course of the Middle East. So what were the implications of Ajax and how would it be interpreted? The success of Operation Ajax essentially gave American policymakers the confidence to overthrow other governments that threatened US strategic interests and created a mystique of invincibility around the CIA. And with minimal expense and risk to the United States, a government friendly to the US had been installed while continuing the fight against communism. The tactics used in Iran became blueprints for future operations. Kermit Roosevelt recognized that the events in Iran could easily have gone wrong, warning that the success of the Iranian coup only succeeded because of luck and favorable circumstances. The White House briefing room following the operation, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles was already planning the next big operation. Indeed, less than a year later, the government orchestrated another operation using very similar tactics in Guatemala. However, regardless of specific details, if the goal of the operation was to simply overthrow Mossadegh's government, then Ajax clearly achieved this, and at a reasonable cost, allowing covert action to become a policy of choice. But the reality of Ajax is somewhat different. As an operation, it initially failed, but was revived by Kermit Roosevelt against orders from CIA headquarters, who ordered him to abandon the mission and leave Iran immediately. The fact that the coup eventually succeeded was a feat which surprised most US policymakers. So let's now examine the various policy considerations of CIA covert action. The first policy consideration which must be addressed is the question of whether Mohammed Mossadegh was actually a threat in the first place. The United States genuinely feared Soviet influence in the region and the impact that communism would have if it were to take root in Iran and mistakenly identified Mossadegh's brand of nationalism as communism. However, although Mossadegh's policies were left-leaning, they were not communist and his own administration had a fragile relationship with the two-day. For instance, during the oil boycott, the Soviet Union offered no assistance to Iran and neither did it support Mossadegh's government during and immediately after the coup. Indeed, the influence of the two-day in Mossadegh's government was also negligible because its support declined from 1948 to 1953. And according to author Stephen Kinzer in his 2008 book, All the Shah's Men, An American Coup and the Roots of Middle Eastern Terror, CIA agents admitted after the coup that the two-day was, quote, not very powerful and that higher-level U.S. officials routinely exaggerated its strength and Mossadegh's reliance on it. Essentially, U.S. policymakers misinterpreted Mossadegh's threat to national security because the CIA and State Department only saw what they wanted to believe, which was that communism was a clear and present danger. Furthermore, there is a growing volume of research which suggests that a coup d'etat was probably unnecessary to topple Mossadegh because by the summer of 1953, Mossadegh was in a hazardous political position, which meant that he would probably have fallen of his own accord. Hence, the United States may have achieved a similar outcome by simply doing nothing. The second policy consideration which must be addressed is the domino theory effect. The reasoning behind this argument is that when one country succumbs to communism, the others around it would eventually capitulate. The US was adamant in not allowing a vital strategic area such as the Middle East to fall under Soviet influence. However, Mossadegh was first and foremost a nationalist and did not align himself with any foreign nation. His vision was to liberate Iran from colonial control. 
but the country simply shifted from one sphere of colonial influence to another. The third policy consideration to address is the knock-on effect for other policy areas. This refers to an obsessive focus on countries situated next to the Soviet border, forming part of a US Cold War containment strategy. But this policy ultimately drew resources away from other policy areas. There is a strong argument which suggests that the US funds spent on providing covert support to the Iranian military to maintain the Shah's rule may have actually stymied long-term economic development in Iran. These same tax dollars could have been spent towards genuine economic development for the Iranian people, allowing Iran to become a loyal and willing ally of the United States rather than a forced ally, which was dependent on massive US government support. Let's now turn to our next area of analysis, which is what were the consequences of the coup? The first consequence relates to Iranian oil. Within a year of Mossadegh's overthrow, both the United States and Great Britain renegotiated advantageous oil contracts under the Iranian Oil Consortium of 1954. But alarmingly, the vast wealth of Iran's great natural resource had yet to benefit the majority of its population. Vast social and economic inequality amongst the population continued to afflict Iran, a condition which itself became a fertile breeding ground for the potential spread of communism and were only addressed through a repressive dictatorship and the large-scale apparatus of an efficient police state. In economic terms, the United States gained valuable access to the Iranian oil industry. Oil fields in post-coup Iran were divided up between the United States, 40%, Great Britain, 40%, and all other countries, 20%. Profits were shared with Iran, and the name NIOC, the National Iranian Oil Company, was chosen to validate the image of Iranian nationalization. The second consequence relates to democracy. The US effectively extinguished Iran's fledgling de democratic movement before it had the opportunity to flourish, and the ideology behind the coup became the source of misguided American policy towards the Middle East for decades. For instance, in Iran, the coup left a legacy of economic hardship and bloodshed. Violence, torture, death and a culture of fear surfaced under the Shah's 26-year authoritarian and dictatorial rule. However, the American government turned a blind eye to all of this and were eager to support the Shah as the strongman of the Middle East because he became a subservient ally safeguarding American economic and security interests. The third consequence relates to military expenditure. Operation Ajax taught the leaders of the Third World an important Cold War lesson, that the world's most powerful nation was willing to tolerate tyrannical oppression and the suspension of democratic principles, provided the governments engaged in those activities were firmly aligned with the West. And by the late 1960s, oil revenues were contributing a greater share to Iran's economy, which increased dramatically after the oil price shock of the early 1970s. By this time, Iran was spending much of its oil wealth on Western military hardware, becoming a major client of US arms industry until well into the Carter administration. From a strategic point of view, the United States gained a stable ally in the Middle East. Essentially, Iran acted as an Eastern bulwark for the US Middle Eastern foreign policy due to its long border with the Soviet Union thus creating a formidable barrier to Soviet advancement. 
the Shah was effectively given a free reign to purchase high-tech American munitions and an array of non-nuclear weapon systems. Between 1972 and 1976, at an estimated cost of more than 10 billion US dollars, the Shah built the fifth largest army in the world, and his hold on power was made possible due to years of US support via overt and covert military aid, allowing his regime to rule with brutal authority. The fourth consequence relates to social and political discontent. During the Shah's 26-year rule, 1953-79, to a considerable amount of social and political unrest occurred. For instance, massive anti-government demonstrations in Tehran by Islamic clerics and anti-Shah conservatives as early as June 1963 indicated popular dissatisfaction with his rule, as well as offering a sense of foreboding about things to come in Iran. This discontent eventually culminated in the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution of 1979, which transformed not only the internal structures of the Iranian nation, but also American policy towards the region. The long-standing American-Iranian alliance ended, and the anti-Americanism, which became a hallmark of the Islamic Revolution, meant that Iran was now deemed a serious threat to regional stability. As for Iran's standard of living during the Shah's tenure, poverty remained a key issue within Iranian society. And despite its oil wealth, Iran should have been one of the most prosperous nations in the Middle East, but under the Shah's rule, Iran was plagued with shortages in housing, high living costs, and also importing food staples, which it had once exported in 1953. The fifth consequence relates to human rights. Under the Shah, Iran became one of the most worst abusers of human rights in the world. The repressive police state that emerged conducted purges in all areas of Iranian society and was supported by the United States for many years. Indeed, in 1957, it was the CIA which created and subsequently trained, armed and assisted the Iranian intelligence and security organization known as SAVAK, which emerged as an oppressive and extremely brutal secret police organization. SAVAK acted as the Shah's personal enforcement organization and soon became internationally renowned for its reign of terror. In addition, justice in Iran was lacking in other areas because under the Shah's rule, there was no civil court system. The highest number of executions and the worst international human rights record, according to a 1976 Amnesty International study, as documented by William Bloom in his 1998 book, Killing Hope, US Military and CIA Interventions Since World War II. Moreover, after the 1953 coup, the Shah suppressed all opposition to his rule by censoring the media, banning political organization, and reducing Iran's parliament to a puppet government, which represented only the policy of the Shah. While the US was focused on Iran's value as a counter to the Soviet threat, internal affairs within Iran itself were given insufficient attention. The result was that the Carter administration was caught completely by surprise when Iran's revolution occurred in 1979. This revolution represented not only an establishment of Islamic principles, but it was also a widespread popular dissatisfaction with the Shah's corrupt rule. Despite years of covert and military support by the United States, the Shah was simply unable to maintain his grip on power forever. Perhaps if the United States had continued providing massive economic and military aid to Iran, this may have sustained the Shah's regime indefinitely, but then we must ask ourselves, at what cost? 
In the post-revolutionary years, 1979 onwards, Iran became an arch-enemy of the United States, while the Americans had lost their closest ally in the Middle East. Also, since 1979, the trend of vast amounts of U.S. taxpayer dollars being allocated to the Iranian problem still persists because the United States maintains a hostile policy towards Iran to this day. Famously branded as part of the so-called axis of evil by George W. Bush in 2002, Iran is now seen as a legitimate target for U.S. covert activity because of its involvement in nuclear power projects, which are seen by the Americans as a threatening escalation in the development of nuclear weapons capabilities. The current version of the Iranian problem, which now haunts the United States, is remarkably similar to the U.S. position before the 1953 coup. Had the coup never occurred, Iran may now have become a mature democracy with an advanced economy rather than a staunch enemy of the United States. So having outlined the scenario for covert action taken in Iran and its geopolitical implications, let's turn our attention to the case of Chile, which differed significantly from that of Iran because the Chilean scenario had much deeper roots. The 1973 coup in Chile developed over a longer period of time and preoccupied successive US administrations and was precipitated by an aggressive policy of destabilization by the top echelon of US policymakers. Following the victory of left-leaning candidate Salvador Allende in the 1970 Chilean presidential election, the United States set about working against Allende using diplomatic and economic sanctions and offering financial support to his opposition. Such pressures combined with the inherent stability of Allende's radical economic reforms led to a collapse of the democratic state. On September 11, 1973, General Augusto Pinochet overthrew the Chilean government and began a 17-year dictatorship in the country that still haunts Chileans to this day. The coup was widely reported by international media and led to outrage across the world, even prompting the US Senate to launch an investigation in 1975 via the Church Committee to establish the level of US involvement. While the committee chaired by Senator Frank Church concluded that the United States government did not directly orchestrate the coup, the US authorities certainly played a decisive role. This was mainly achieved through subversive tactics of the CIA in order to create the necessary conditions for economic destabilization, diplomatic isolation and support for opposition groups. So let's start our analysis with a brief overview of the background to Chile. Unlike most other countries in Latin America, Chile had a strong record of political stability due to a robust constitutional framework. Also, a series of democratic civilian governments had been elected since 1932. In the immediate post-World War II period, Chile had a thriving democracy resembling more developed countries such as those in Western Europe, and it maintained friendly relations with the United States. But the pressures of the Cold War placed a damper on Chilean democracy due to internal and external pressures, in particular the United States government. U.S. involvement and interest in Chile was significant due to Chile's abundance of copper as a natural resource and therefore its largest manufacturing industry. American companies owned a major stake in the Chilean economy and any mention of left-leaning policies by politicians during the Cold War drew a great deal of attention from U.S. policymakers. The left-leaning policies of prominent Chilean politicians 
Dr. Salvador Allende drew much criticism from the US government due to a perpetual state of Cold War paranoia. This paranoia was driven by the fear of an eventual victory by Allende and the prospect of a socialist-based Latin American president possibly reaching out to the Soviet Union. In addition, despite the long period of democracy which Chile had benefited from, poverty and inequality still characterize the Chilean socio-economic landscape. For instance, in 1968, the top 2% of Chilean society controlled 46% of national income, whereas the bottom 28% controlled only 5%. Furthermore, the Chilean economy was dominated by US copper giants, Anaconda and Kennecott Copper, which controlled a significant share, almost 80% of Chile's copper mining rights, representing 60% of Chile's national exports. So let's briefly review the early stages of US intervention in Chile. During the 1958 election, Salvador Allende was very close to winning the presidency, coming in narrow second to the conservative liberal candidate, Jorge Alessandri. Then in 1964, Allende was decisively defeated by the Christian Democrat, Eduardo Frey. But for his successful 1970 campaign, Allende ran as the candidate of popular unity, a bloc comprising socialists, communists, radicals, and some distant Christian Democrats, winning with 36.3% of the vote, eventually being confirmed as president on October 24, 1970. Throughout this period, various US governments had already begun the process of influencing the outcome of Chilean elections. The Eisenhower administration approved the funding of specific newspapers and politicians beginning in 1958. Later, Programs in disinformation, propaganda, and the funding and organizing of groups opposed to Allende were undertaken by the CIA as well as the State Department. Under the Kennedy administration in 1962, the United States covertly supported Chilean candidate Eduardo Frey of the Christian Democratic Party. Covert CIA funding continued well into the early 1970s in a concerted attempt to discredit Allende even while he held the office of the president. In particular, CIA operatives used disinformation techniques by disseminating malicious propaganda. In addition, key elements of Chilean society were influenced using established contacts in the political sphere, such as the military, the civil service, trade unions and the media. In the early years, these covert activities appeared to offer success as US-backed candidate Eduardo Frey won a majority in the 1964 presidential election. However, by 1970, when Allende was finally elected president, the long-standing Chilean matter became a major thorn in the foreign policy of the Nixon administration, and subsequently US covert activity was escalating on a much larger scale. And so in the next section, I'd like to examine the complex set of events leading up to the military coup of September the 11th, 1972. Prior to Allende's election in 1970, both President Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, were key members of a little-known, shadowy, but all-powerful committee in the US government. This elite group has been known by a variety of different names under various presidents and different administrations, such as the 5412 group, Special Group 303 Committee and the 40 Committee. Its role was to review high-level covert operation undertaken by the executive branch of the US government. The other members of the 40 Committee would include, for instance, the Director of the CIA, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Security Advisor. And in 1970, Henry Kissinger chaired the 40 Committee, as it was known then. 
The purpose of this interdepartmental group was to plan and oversee all high-risk COVID action plans, such as those targeted at Chile. Interestingly, there were no members of Congress or House representatives on this committee, which meant that the democratic branch of the United States government was effectively left out. The Chilean issue was given a great deal of attention by the 40 committee. Both Nixon and Kissinger believed that Allende's election would pose long-term problems for the United States and for global security. In particular, that other South American countries would fall to international communism, including Argentina, Peru and Bolivia, based on the famous domino effect. After Allende's election on September the 4th, 1970, US covert involvement in Chile escalated dramatically with efforts clearly directed at the economic destabilization of Chile, as well as overt and covert techniques to weaken the government. Overtly, the United States stopped exporting to Chile, which cut off much-needed parts for maintenance and repair in Chile's valuable mining, manufacturing and transportation industries. Also, the US favoured a policy of diplomatic isolation towards Chile. The diplomatic component of the CIA's plan was to isolate Chile and pressure nearby states to condemn Allende's actions, thereby building an entente of key allied states against Chile, which included Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico and Venezuela. In addition, vital economic assistance in the form of international development funds were also halted. World Bank loans were blocked and the US persuaded high-ranking members of the military's officer corps to turn away from their traditional role of constitutional impartiality in political life. Covertly, a foreshadowing of military action in Chile can be seen in Nixon's increasing efforts against Allende. Track 1 began with political and propaganda action and was a approved by the 40 committee. This included CIA funds given to newspapers such as El Mercurio, radio shows, student groups, labor unions, peasant groups, women's groups, opposition parties, in addition to money spent on targeted propaganda such as posters, wall art and leaflet distribution. Track two involved preparation for a military coup through various initiatives spearheaded by the CIA. The CIA dispatched a special task force of field operatives to Chile in a frantic effort to assess potential military leaders who might move against Allende before his inauguration. According to the Church Committee, Nixon's orders were for the CIA to play an active role in organizing a military coup d'etat in Chile before the presidential inauguration was confirmed. However, a major obstacle to any military involvement against Allende was then Army Commander-in-Chief, General René Schneider, who was committed to upholding the principles of the Chilean constitution under what became known as the Schneider Doctrine. General Schneider was himself assassinated in a failed kidnapping attempt on October 22, 1970, two days prior to Allende being sworn in as president of Chile. Subsequently, in the run-up to Allende's overthrow in 1973, an ill-fated coup was attempted on June 29th, but was suppressed by another constitutional loyalist and Schneider's replacement as Commander-in-Chief, General Carlos Prats. Later, Prats resigned due to a high-profile public incident and was replaced by General Augusto Pinochet. So overall, the cumulative effect of economic destabilization applied by the US on Chile was designed to create the necessary conditions resembling a political powder keg that would require only a spark to ignite a military coup. The eventual bloody coup occurred on September the 11th, 1973 at La Moneda, the presidential palace in the capital Santiago. 
The palace building came under heavy bombing by the Chilean Air Force, while army tanks and infantry surrounded the palace, firing tear gas and storming the compound. Significant unrest spread throughout the country, particularly in factories and on university campuses. Tens of thousands of Allende supporters were detained by the military in sports stadiums such as the Estadio Chile and the Estadio Nacional. The coup ushered in 17 years of rule by General Pinochet, during which more than 3,000 political opponents were killed or disappeared by the military and thousands more were imprisoned and tortured. But unlike the coup in Iran 1953, the Chilean coup was not meticulously organised by the CIA and the agency even denied any involvement for many, many years. The Chilean military organised and carried out the coup while the death of President Allende was attributed to either suicide or being killed in combat during the final assault of the presidential palace. Although the CIA were not directly involved in the deaths of Salvador Allende or General Schneider, this does not exclude US authorities from culpability because their deaths were orchestrated by US intervention, both covert and overt. So in the next section, I'd like to examine some of the consequences of the Chilean operation, in particular policy decisions and outcomes. The first policy area to examine is the decision of the military coup itself by asking, was US-led regime change necessary in Chile and what level of threat did Allende's government actually pose to either the US or international security? This is a subject of intense scholarly debate and we should ponder carefully on the perceived threat posed by Allende's government, or indeed if it represented a Marxist or communist government in the first place. That's because policies involving the nationalization of key state industries are not just limited to communist states. For example, the nationalist program of Mossadegh in Iran was that of a moderate government motivated by wealth distribution towards its population in light of decades of colonial dominance. In addition, many nations in Western Europe had previously pursued social democratic agendas which involved varying degrees of state ownership of industries and resources. In particular, the immediate post-World War II period to regenerate shattered economies. In addition, they maintained close pro-American political and military ties whilst countering the Soviet threat during the Cold War period. Allende's government was neither communist nor Marxist, but instead a coalition of popular unity comprising a broad spectrum of left-leaning interests. This included the socialists, the centrist radicals as well as the communists. Hence the more extreme fears about Allende's election were ill-founded. There never was a significant threat of a Soviet military presence. The export potential of Allende's revolution was limited and Allende himself showed very little affinity to the cause of radical exiles from other Latin American countries when compared to his more conservative predecessors. Nevertheless, those fears once ex exaggerated appear to have fueled US policymakers to act not on strategic and security concerns, but rather on ideology and the fear of psychological repercussions which accompany any conflict of ideologies. The second policy area to examine is the outcome of investment. The coup of September the 11th, 1973 was a turning point in Chilean history because it marked the end of democracy in that country and the beginning of 17 years of military dictatorship before free democratic elections would return to the country. From an American perspective, the new junta in Chile represented a return to business as usual because Chile's position as a key raw commodity supplier boosted world financial markets in the aftermath of the coup 
Furthermore, U.S. interests in the Chilean economy soared as approximately 150 million U.S. dollars in commercial loans from American and Canadian banks entered Chile just two months after the coup. In 1975, Chile received some 57.8 million in foreign direct investment from the United States, whereas all other Latin American nations received just 9 million. The third policy area to examine is the outcome of political repression in society. After the Allende coup, dictatorship became the norm in Chile. The military junta under General Pinochet declared martial law, closed the Chilean Congress, cancelled future elections, censored the press and banned opposition groups, including political parties. What followed was violent repression on a massive scale. Pinochet's military dictatorship segmented the Chilean population in terms of their ideological threat, labelling them subversive elements and targeted anyone who fit this profile. The Chilean army detained and tortured thousands of individuals and organised death squads that travelled throughout the country, executing suspected opponents of the military junta. According to the Valek report on political imprisonment and torture published in 2004, at least 30,000 people were tortured from 1973 to 1990. Under the dictatorship of General Pinochet, the people of Chile were subjected to a systematic campaign of torture and state violence, and estimated 4,000 Chilean citizens were executed or disappeared, while an estimated 200,000 Chileans, around 2% of Chile's population, in 1973 were forced into exile. Criticism of the new government became a criminal offence. Arrest and detention were carried out at random and a new secret police force was created to enforce the junta's laws. The National Intelligence Directorate, or DINA, was established in November 1973 with sweeping new powers to arrest without warrant, torture and authorise the disappearance and murder of Chilean citizens. The military also took responsibility of the administration of much of Chilean society. Universities, for example, experienced severe censorship of scholarly pursuits as campuses were run by military administration. University presidents and academic deans were replaced by military officers. University tuition rates were raised dramatically. Marxist left-wing and critical thought were eliminated from the curriculum and any textbooks or teaching materials that were considered questionable were purged from the educational system from all levels of education. The military junta also carried out assassination operations outside of Chilean borders. Certain assassinations were carried out against those who remained loyal to the Chilean constitution and to the previous Allende government. Former Army Commander-in-Chief General Carlos Prats and his wife were killed in a car bomb explosion in Buenos Aires, in September 1974. Also, Orlando Letelier, the former Chilean ambassador to the United States and defense minister under Salvador Allende, was killed by a car bomb along with his associate Ronnie K. Moffitt, a U.S. citizen, in Washington in September 1976. Bernardo Leighton, Chile's former vice president, and his wife were nearly killed in a machine gun attack in Rome in October 1975. Targeted assassinations such as these were part of a larger operation known as Operation Condor, a joint project between the right-wing regimes of Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Paraguay and Uruguay, which were designed to hunt down and kill terrorists and subversives as well as anyone else critical of these South American governments. None of the above occurrences were predicted by policymakers in Washington and none of these were intended policy goals 
all covert activity organized by the US government via the CIA or its other agencies culminated in situations over which Washington had very little control and had a difficult time in dealing with the repercussions for many years afterwards. Nevertheless, the United States maintained positive links with the military regime of Chile long after the coup and were fully aware of much of what was being perpetrated at the time. The fourth policy area to examine is the outcome of economic decision-making. Despite a concerted drive by the US government, both overt and covert, to economically destabilize President Allende's administration after his 1970 election, it's worth noting that economic indicators point significantly towards Allende's own mismanagement of the Chilean economy as an underlying cause for economic collapse prior to the military coup. This includes the loss of credit from foreign sources that saw Chile as a higher credit risk, a balance of payments crisis, rampant inflation and a rapid expansion of state ownership into the private sector. The Allende government also inherited a considerable amount of foreign debt from the former Frey government. Hence, a combination of internal and external factors were the major causes of Chile's decline, rather than pointing solely to the actions of U.S. policymakers. Indeed, U.S. intervention certainly expedited an already floundering economy. So let's now wrap up with some concluding remarks. Overall, using the examples cited throughout this dual episode, covert action rarely produces positive results for the target country when evaluated using specific criteria. For instance, from a military perspective, covert operations are rarely successful, often adopting a more overt stance. The relative success of Iran 1953 depended largely upon factors which lay outside of US control and relied heavily on chance. Similarly, from an economic standpoint, covert operations rarely offer success because economic variables cannot be completely isolated and controlled. In addition, propaganda-style covert activity tends to be of limited use because it is always subversive by nature and it focuses solely on short-term objectives and the goalposts are often moved to suit the particular mission. Moreover, even when covert action leads to a small degree of success, there is always an element of failure involved which can have lasting repercussions. Although the long-term implications of using covert action are impossible to predict, we can establish some general conclusions regarding its use, which can be outlined according to six broad principles. Principle one is that covert action is usually unreliable. Due to its secretive nature, covert action relies heavily on what lies beyond the immediate control of the government employing it. And those parties involved in covert action may become uncooperative or subject to volatility by changing their modus operandi at any given moment. In the case of Operation Ajax, the Shah was uncomfortable with the covert plan presented by the US government and fled Iran immediately upon hearing the news of Ajax's initial failure to overthrow the Mossadegh government. Also, even the Shah's most fervent supporter, General Fazlola Zahidi, lacked confidence in the covert plan and went into hiding outside Tehran. If either of these two individuals had decided not to continue with the Ajax operation, despite the encouragement of Kermit Roosevelt, the plan would have failed completely. In Chile, the botched kidnapping of Army Commander-in-Chief, 
General René Schneider is another illustration of effects which lie beyond the control of the US government. Those who killed Schneider believed that they were acting on the instructions of their CIA handlers, because although the CIA did not officially commit the act, nevertheless conceived, planned and instructed it. Hence, employing a third party to undertake risky covert operations such as kidnapping, US policymakers should take note to accept counterproductive results. This lack of reliability in covert action as a policy tool suggests that it should be used sparingly, if at all, and only after considerable analysis based on solid intelligence, which has been collected over a long period of time. Principle two is that covert action is rarely ever 100% covert. Time has a way of revealing hidden truths, and sooner or later covert action loses its luster of non-attribution and any display of plausible denial therefore vanishes. If covertness is the desired objective, then to maintain its effectiveness, a low-key operational level is absolutely necessary. In Iran, the CIA's propaganda efforts in Operation Bedam worked in a low-key manner until efforts were escalated under Operation Ajax. In Chile, the propaganda and political maneuvering undertaken by the CIA during the 1960s did not become public knowledge until US covert efforts were dramatically increased in the early 1970s. These examples once again illustrate the importance of covert operations to remain as low-key as possible because once the scale of their operations is increased they become self-defeating. Principle 3. Contrary to popular belief, covert action is rarely ever cheap. In the short term, covert action can appear to be an inexpensive option, but over the long term, the relative success requires ongoing costs. In the case of Iran, the relatively inexpensive sum of funding Operation Ajax, which is estimated between 10,000 and 20 million US dollars, should not be viewed in terms of its initial layout costs, the billion plus US dollar figure that was necessary to keep the Shah in power for a quarter of a century must also be part of the financial accounting process. The decades of both covert and overt support of the Shah's regime eventually resulted in a failed program because his rule collapsed in 1979, which proved to be very costly in the long term. In Chile too, the financial costs of covertly supporting the government of Eduardo Frey proved to be a cumulative burden over time. Principle four, covert action can easily become counterproductive. The unreliability of covert activity can often create more problems than the intent to solve. The end result is that by correcting covert action through further problem solving, this leads to an undesired escalation of covert action. For instance, in Chile, the failure of political and propaganda efforts against Salvador Allende eventually led to increased covert efforts using economic and military methods. Also, the kidnapping and assassination of General René Schneider did not produce a military coup, but a steadfast commitment by the Allende government to honor the constitutional process. The eventual discovery of US covert activity by the Chilean nation became counterproductive because this led to further covert action and subsequently led to the 1973 coup and long-term dictatorship under Pinochet, which was not an intended goal of US foreign policy. Principle 5. Covert action remains anti-democratic and legally suspect. Covert activity affects the lives of many citizens without their knowledge and such action on behalf of government sets a poor example for international relations. Moreover, covert military operations are effectively undeclared acts of war waged against a population which is vulnerable and unable to defend itself. Similarly, 
While propaganda, political and economic operations are less violent, they nevertheless bypass democratic procedures which may or not exist in the target country. Democratic principles based on international law were certainly violated in both Iran and Chile through the covert operations of the US government, in addition to eradicating the constitutional rights of the citizens of both nations. Principle 6, covert action can compromise the traditional role of espionage. International agencies around the world are designed to gather relevant data on unstable regimes and situations of vital national interest. Hence, due to the consequences of covert action undertaken by the US government, the espionage function of the CIA has effectively been compromised. And this is based on the reasoning that effective covert action is not possible without an accurate and solid foundation of intelligence. This implies that espionage is highly necessary and valuable, while covert action is not. It's also fair to say that covert action is extremely dependent upon espionage, whereas the reverse is not true. And this explains why the espionage function is traditionally more significant in the realm of foreign policy. Covert action clearly has its own set goals, which has been predetermined by policymakers. While on the other hand, intelligence collection should not be policy-oriented. Sound intelligence takes a pragmatic approach, whereby intelligence experts must thoughtfully analyze and evaluate all essential considerations relating to national security issues. A good example of this is the decision taken by John F. Kennedy to use a naval blockade during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, rather than opt for direct military strikes as advocated by his defense team. Hence, in summary, the use of covert action compromises the quality of the intelligence itself, which may in turn, adversely affect policy decision process. And so in the final analysis, covert action appears to be a high-risk proposition with an enormous degree of uncertainty, a great potential for negative repercussion and a relatively low rate of positive return. Although this assessment applies mainly to the use of covert action during the Cold War, as demonstrated throughout this dual episode, it's also applicable to contemporary global affairs. And that's because the present international scenario is unlike the world during the Cold War period. The end of the Cold War in 1991 saw the collapse of the bipolar world order and the emergence of a unipolar global order due to the uncontested supremacy of the US military whose political and economic might no other state could question. This posed new challenges to the realm of foreign policy decision-making and the use of covert action because of the greater opportunity and motivation to attempt regime change by the United States without any checks and balances in the international system. The current approach to regime change has evolved considerably from its origins in the Cold War due to the advancement of information and communications technology in the 21st century and the relationship to modern information warfare. However, in an ironic twist, the excessive use or misuse of regime change and information warfare has contributed to the relative decline of US power and the gradual emergence of a multipolar global order, in particular the influence of countries such as China, India and Russia among others. For instance, during the Cold War the narrative was that the United States and its allies were preventing the spread of communism in the free world. This narrative has evolved in the post-Cold War period to embrace universal values and norms whereby the West is spreading democracy and freedom to the unfree world. This has been carried out through attempts to stymie the rise of 
Chinese and Russian influence in order to retain a military and political advantage, both regionally and globally. Hence, the end goal has shifted from absolute global hegemony to a rearguard action which attempts to thwart the rise of competitors and maintain the United States' hegemonic position. The West's current strategy of peaceful evolution is designed and crafted towards bringing about a non-military approach to regime change. Inevitably, this means that contemporary information warfare and regime change are being applied in a new qualitative environment of international relations. For recent examples of attempted regime change, we only need to look at the color revolutions in the post-Soviet states between 2000 and 2005, the Arab Spring revolutions between 2011 to 2014, Euromaidan, Ukraine in 2014, Syria 2014 onwards, Bolivia 2019, the military coup against President Evo Morales, and Venezuela, where several attempts at regime change took place between 2019 to 2020 against President Nicolas Maduro via US-supported operations. The examples cited are those which in recent years have had the greatest geopolitical significance, forming only the tip of the iceberg. There are other numerous examples, but the complexities of each case are beyond the scope of this particular episode. For instance, in 2019, China experienced a similar event to the color revolutions in Hong Kong that was apparently sparked off on issues surrounding extradition law. What remains clear, though, is the motivations and reasoning behind regime change and information warfare essentially remain unchanged, which are to ultimately serve national interest and pursue foreign policy objectives at all costs. Moreover, the degree of secrecy by which covert action is undertaken becomes a clear threat to democratic order and stability as major decisions are kept from public scrutiny. Covert activity has been transformed in the 21st century due to the power and reach of information warfare with two clear purposes. Firstly, to legitimize military intervention when subverting a target government. Secondly, to delegitimize the target government and therefore reduce its ability to defend itself. This creates a paradoxical, almost perverse scenario where deception becomes the truth and regime change is rebranded as freedom and any US-backed opposition is heralded as freedom and democracy. If by their very purpose, covert actions are designed to provide US policymakers with the upper hand due to their cloak of secrecy, then if allowed to go unchecked without regard for international probity, this form of activity will inevitably lead to further forms of abuse, both seen and unseen. And one of the most enduring implications of covert action is the emittance of long-term repercussions and the creation of dependent entities. Recent dependencies include despotic regimes such as the Shah of Iran or General Pinochet in Chile. In such cases, US authorities should not recoil from the violent upheavals that ensue when such despots are disposed, because when the Pandora's box of covert operations is opened, all actions have consequences. Recent history reminds us of the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, which should not be portrayed as some type of cataclysmic event, given the nature and the history of US covert action there. In the realm of foreign policy, the United States is best advised to proceed with caution, or as the soothsayer warned in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to this final episode of Good Morning Canada. And as always, I really appreciated your company. Perhaps I'll see you in another time and place. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.